The first of our two readings this morning is taken from Romans chapter 8, verses 28 to 33. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those who God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will we, he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. The second reading is taken from Psalms 31, verses 7 to 16. I will be glad and rejoice in your love. For you saw my affliction, and you knew the anguish of my soul. You have not given me into the hands of the enemy, but have set my feet into spacious place. Be merciful to me, Lord, for I am in distress. My eyes grow weak with sorrow, my soul and body with grief. My life is consumed by anguish, and my years by groaning. My strength fails because of my affliction, and my bones grow weak. Because of all the enemies, I am utter contempt of my neighbours and an object of dread to my closest friends. Those who see me on the street flee from me. I am forgotten as though I were dead. I have become broken like pottery, for I hear my whispering, terror on every side. They conspire against me and plot to take my life. But I trust in you, Lord. I say, you are my God. My times in your hands deliver me from the hands of my enemies, from those who pursue me. Let your face shine on your servant. This is the word of the Lord. And so I'm sure that uh, most of us uh, will recognize, even if we don't know um, Paul personally, uh, but we are really indebted to Paul for joining us um, this morning. So... Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the ways, the many ways in which you speak to our hearts and our souls. We thank you in particular for your word. I pray now that you would speak through me and your word, that your name may be glorified and that we may be built up as a body to be sent out to live and serve your son, Jesus. Amen. Well, it is always uh, a great gift to come to Wanish. And uh, I got up out of bed this morning and I thought, brilliant. Uh, we're, we're scattered as a family at the moment. Um, uh, my, my wife has gone to the induction of a friend in the Southwark Diocese and my um, daughter goes to Christchurch in Guildford. So we're, we're, we're scattered all over the place. But I'm I, I sort of thought I won the prize this morning by being with you. So thanks, as always, for your lovely welcome. 
One of the things that I've really grown to love about Surrey is trees. I've never lived in a place with so many trees, and I think I'm right in saying that our county is the most wooded county in England. And in our front garden, we have the most beautiful beech tree. And um, I think I may have a photograph taken this morning. Um, And what is absolutely stunning about this beech tree is that the day we moved into the house, it was as if its leaves were just pure gold. And the incredible thing is that actually the leaves have been pure gold on two occasions since the day that we moved in. And each year it's been on the anniversary of the day that we moved in. Um, And this morning I was reminded that today is the anniversary, the the second anniversary of the day that we moved to Surrey. I'm just amazed at how how nature keeps time. Um, And uh, Elizabeth Barrett Browning's words come to mind when when I see this tree. Earth's crammed with heaven and every common bush is a fire with a living God. Only he who sees takes off his shoes. The rest sit round plucking blackberries. It's my theory that actually the world does a lot of plucking blackberries. And uh, we used to have a a prayer in our Sunday club, which Louise, my wife, wrote many years ago. Uh, And it was a prayer that has sort of followed us around ministry and we've left it behind in each parish. And it's engraved on our souls and it prays simply, loving God, open our eyes to see you, open our ears to hear you, and open our hearts to love you. And uh, it's just it was so wonderful. So I just wanted to share that with you. Um, uh, so I give thanks today for um, the privilege of living and working in your midst and beginning today my third year. It seems almost impossible that I'm beginning a third year in Surrey. But as I do, memories go back to the sort of conversations that I had around the time of my calling here. And I remember that in my first week, one of, the word, one, of the, one of the conversations that I had with Bishop Andrew was that he asked me, um, tell me, Paul, what do you think about our vision as a diocese? Tell me what you really think. And I said, well, I, I think it's mind-blowing. Actually, it's part of the reason that I was called here. Um, transforming church, transforming lives has to be at the heart of what we're about. And I believe that really truly. In fact, I believe that if we are the same people today in leaving this church as we were the people who arrived, then something's missing. That actually this, this act of worship is meant to be transforming. We're meant to be different people when we leave from the people we were when we arrived. So Bishop Andrew said to me, that's great, thank you. He said, I feel really affirmed by that. But I want to push you a bit, he said. Um, Could you be sort of critical of our vision in any way? And I thought, well, this is really unfair. I've only been here five minutes. (laughs) Uh, You're trying to to trip me up. No, he said, said, please, he said, be be a critical friend. So I said, okay, if you're going to push me into a corner, um, if I have to be critical, um, the, the vision has 12 goals. Um, if I tested you on any of them this morning, uh, could you, how many of the 12 could you get? Um, visions, on the whole, need to be simple. We all need to be able to remember what our vision is. 
In my last diocese, I said to the bishop, how, how well embedded do you think your diocesan vision is? And he said, oh, I think it's quite well embedded. And I said, okay. I said, I'll test it. So I had a vicar who was on holiday, and I offered to cover for him. And I went to the, to the 8 o'clock service. And I said to them, uh, at the end, um, I haven't lost the plot. I'm going to ask you some questions as you leave about our diocesan vision. And everybody looked at me as if I was talking a different language. A vision needs to be something that we all own. And as we've travelled with this vision over the last two years, we've sort of begun to sort of recognise that actually there are a lot of goals here, and this is a recipe for burnout. But as we've travelled with it, and as we've prayed with it, we've sort of recognised something, which is that actually there's one primary goal here. So I won't go through all the goals, because not even I can remember them off by heart. But the first goal in our diocese is to be prayerful, confident disciples in daily life. And this isn't official, but I, I messed around with a computer one day. And, um, uh, and my graphics aren't very good either. But I try to represent this in a different way. So actually we've got one central vision, which is about being prayerful, confident disciples in daily life. And then all the other bits of the vision actually are rooted in that. The twelfth goal is about having fit-for-purpose buildings. Well, what use is a fit-for-purpose building if actually we're not doing anything about being prayerful, confident disciples? So actually everything overflows from this first goal. And there's a real sense that as a senior team in the diocese, we feel that actually this is where God is calling us to go. So I know that this term, uh, you've been praying through chapter 8 of St. Paul's letter to the Romans. And um, it strikes me that uh, the idea of being prayerful, confident disciples is very, very deeply rooted in this text. Romans is one of the finest books in the New Testament, focusing on the gospel of justification and of salvation of Jew and Greek alike by the grace of God and through faith in Jesus Christ. One of my favourite writers, Tom Wright, says this of Romans, and I love this. Romans is neither a systematic theology or a summary of Paul's life work, but it is by common consent his masterpiece. It dwarfs most of his other writings, an alpine peak towering over hills and villages. Not, as onlookers have viewed it, not all onlookers have viewed it in the same light or from the same angle, and their snapshots and paintings of it are sometimes remarkably unlike. Not all climbers have taken the same route up its sheer sides, and there is frequent disagreement on the best approach. But what nobody doubts is that we are here dealing with a work of massive substance, presenting a formidable intellectual challenge, whilst offering a breathtaking theological and spiritual vision. I absolutely love that image of Romans as the sort of 
the mountain in the middle of all the mountains of Paul's work. And if, if uh, Romans is the peak, then chapter 8 of Romans is almost like the peak of the peaks. I know that some of you will have been reading Mark uh, Batterson's book, If, as a companion to studying Romans. And Mark would agree and would further say that chapter 8 is the peak of the peak, citing Martin Luther, who described this chapter of Romans as the greatest gospel of them all. William Tyndale, martyred for translating uh, the Bible into English, most, the most excellent part of the New Testament. John Piper, the greatest chapter in the Bible, in shorthand, the great eight. We really are dealing here with a very sacred part of scripture. Now, I don't want to re-preach David's uh, excellent sermon from last week, but I do want to just include verses 26 and 27 in this text that we're looking at today, because I think they give a completeness to this goal of ours. Louise, my wife, has just started doing the occasional preacher's course in the diocese. And uh, she came back after the first session and she said to me, Paul, William really challenged me today with an exceptionally difficult question. And I said, yes. I said, what was that? Well, we began the the occasional preacher's course um, by William asking us a question. I want you to think of the worst sermon that you've ever heard. And she said, Paul, she said, I told him I found it just so difficult um, because you've given me so many to choose from. (laughs) (laughs) William recounted uh, that story later in the week in the office. And I did remind Louise that I'd been asked to present the certificates this year. Uh, And there may be one less going out. Um, we We had a laugh over supper that night. But um, we started um, recalling uh, sermons that we'd heard over the years, and uh, particularly my training incumbent, who was both the fastest speaker ever, um, uh, sometimes members of the music group and the, um, and, and the choir would actually try and count the words per minute. Um, and also, he loved preaching on prepositions and conjunctions. So over the years, we had but, when, how, or only, until, since, unless. But we never had an if. So thank you, David, for providing me with the opportunity this morning to preach for the first time uh, on a preposition, if. And it's possibly the best of all prepositions because it challenges us so much. I love Mark Batterson's observations that one of the saddest epitaphs in the Bible is hidden away in Jeremiah 46, verse 17. Give Pharaoh of Egypt the title King Bombast, the man who missed his moment. Isn't that wonderful or awful? Pharaoh Hophra was the fourth king Uh, of the 26th dynasty of Egypt, as the political and religious leader of one of the most advanced civilizations on earth. He had so much potential, 
so much power. But he missed his what-if moment. And he took his if-only regrets to the tomb. So briefly this morning, three what-ifs. The first what-if is, what if we prayed more? The text that you looked at last week, in the same way the Spirit helps us in our weakness, we do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. I want to show you um, a very brief clip from um, a film, many of you have probably seen it, called Shadowlands. It's the edited and adapted biography of C.S. Lewis, uh, played by Anthony Hopkins. Um, And there's just a moment in the film where um, Lewis says something very significant about prayer. Ah, good news, I think, Harry. Yes, good news. Very glad, Jack. Thank you, Christopher. Thank you. Christopher can scoff, but I know how hard you've been praying. Now God is answering your prayer. That's not why I pray, Harry. I pray because I can't help myself. I pray because I'm helpless. I pray because because the need flows out of me all the time, waking and sleeping. It doesn't change God. It changes me. That had a profound influence on me when I first saw the film. If you haven't seen the whole film, it's very moving. It's the um, story of um, C.S. Lewis's um, relationship um, with um, his American poet wife, um, which comes to uh, a very sad end as she's diagnosed with cancer not long after they are married. And, what then beca- and then uh, their lives together become a journey towards her death, and he and she helps Lewis um, to embrace that and to face it with a sense of hope. But that line is very powerful um, about prayer being not so much about changing God, but about changing us. The highlight of my last week was a chance encounter in Chobham. I preached in Chobham uh, about three weeks ago. They're in vacancy just like you. In fact, they went into vacancy at about the same time as you did. Um, And uh, I'm not going to say they have appointed, but they have appointed. Um, God has moved slightly quicker there, but he's got the right person for you too. Um, And uh, I preached there about three weeks ago. And sadly, um, the associate vicar's wife passed away during the week. So I went to take part in the funeral And I was coming back from, walking back to the car from the funeral tea um, after the service. And uh, a member of the congregation stopped me. And uh, she said, have you got five minutes, Paul? And I said, yes. And she said, I want to just tell you that a remarkable thing has happened to me in the last fortnight. Um, She said, you'll remember you'll remember that you gave us homework after your sermon a fortnight ago. I thought, did I? (laughs) I remembered that I gave them homework. And the 
The sermon was on prayer. And I gave them two bits of homework and asked them to commit themselves to this. She said, my life has changed. She said, I have started praying in a completely different way and I just feel like a new person. That's been the highlight of my last week, that God in some way, through his grace, um, has kindled in the heart of um, somebody who's been a member of a congregation in Chobham for a very, very long time and has begun a new relationship with the living God. Prayer, for those of us who've been praying a long time, isn't always easy. But the wonderful news in this passage is the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We have support in our prayer. The Spirit prays for us, intercedes for us, with sighs too deep for words. What would it mean for each of us to pray more? Second challenge uh, within this text is, what if we confided in God more? And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be firstborn amongst many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. The answer, what if we confided in God more, is that we would grow more as inheritors of his kingdom. Bishop Andrew reminded us last Lent that um, our English word confidence comes from the Latin confides, with faith. Confidence means with faith. Faith looks to heaven and trusts God for everything. For Paul reminds us God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. I had my purpose tested about 15 years ago, just a very brief sort of ministerial testimony. Um, I had a very privileged first 10 years of my ministry. It was privileged in many respects. Um, one of the ways it was privileged was that I was sent to work by the sea and I had since been a child, wanted to be a lifeboatman. So I spent 10 years, my first 10 years as a curate and a vicar, um, fulfilling my life dream of being a lifeboatman. And we lived in the most beautiful part of the UK. Um, uh, I was curate at St David's Cathedral in Pembrokeshire, um, which, if any of you visited it, uh, is a stunning part of the world. And then I moved just five miles down the road. I was there for four years, moved five down, miles down the road, and I was vicar of Solva, um, a beautiful harbour village um, where we had a mooring, we had a vicarage mooring, in the harbour, and um, it was idyllic. We lived in a Queen Anne rectory overlooking uh, St. Bride's Bay, um, and the villagers all thought that 
they were made up because we were, we were, we were a bit like the Bronte family uh, living in this beautiful vicarage and they perceived that we were going to have however many daughters and live there for 36 years. And actually, um, I think I thought, just like, um, uh, just like the sort of Mount of Transfiguration, that I was going to build a booth here and I was going to retire from that. I'd worked out, my predecessor had been vicar there for 34 years, I'd worked out that, if, that on a good wind and with uh, health from the Lord, I could probably do 38 years as vicar there. And after 10 years, something happened. Um, Brother Bernard, who was, current, who was then prior of Hillfield, in, uh, a friar in Dorset, Franciscan, um, came each year to visit some tertiary Franciscans we had in the parish. And he sat underneath the pulpit on a Sunday. And he was listening intently to me. And then after the service, he said, Paul, he said, I'd like to come and speak to you this week at some stage. I have a word for you. And um, I was a bit sort of disconcerted by this. So um, he said, when can I come? I said, can you come tomorrow morning? Um, yeah, fine. What time? Nine o'clock. Oh, no, he said, coffee at 11? I, I, I couldn't wait for what he had to tell me. So he turned up at 11 o'clock. And um, I made him coffee. Uh, and I was, he could obviously tell I was anxious. I said, um, Bernard, what's this word you have for me? And he smiled. And he said, the word I have for you is this. What the hell are you doing here? <laughs> and I was dumbstruck. I said, what do you mean? He said, you're young. You're full of life. You've been gifted by God. What are you doing in this beautiful village? He said, now look. He said, God has blessed this wonderful mistake. As he always does. That's a bit hard. I didn't, I, I, I didn't mean that. He said, your time here has been blessed. But he said, it's now time that you leave. And I don't think I've had ever anybody challenge me quite so much. But the metaphor of the lifeboat was really significant because I'd enjoyed being on this lifeboat for ten years. But now God wanted to throw me into the water. And now God wanted to really push me and I started to learn. A few months after that, um, uh, one of our canons came to preach at the cathedral. He was, he was vicar of the poorest parish in the diocese. And he'd just retired. And he took me to one side after cathedral evensong. And he said, Paul, will you come and be vicar of our parish? He said, nobody's going to come. It's the poorest parish in the diocese. It's in a really awful state. I've worked really hard, but... Um, with little fruit and I really think that you should think about this seriously I went home and told Louise and within a few days she said to me I'm sorry to tell you the bad news but we're going God is calling us and we went and for seven years I was vicar of one of the poorest parishes in Wales um, parish of, of Burryport um, I arrived with a congregation of 10, 12 old ladies in a building that sat 700. Um, the town was without any source of hope whatsoever. Here is a common scene where um, uh, an empty building had just been set alight by some young people. And there was seemingly no hope there at all. 
It was the hardest seven years I had. I was very fortunate that right at the beginning of my time there, after about three months of doing nothing but burying suicides, and it beginning to affect my own mental health, an angel turned up in the form of a very gifted church leader who moved in not far from us and had been sent by God to say to me, "Um, you'll be okay. Uh, I'm going to hold your hand. I'm going to be the human hand that holds on to yours. But actually, together, we're going to discern God's vision for this place. And the latter glory of this house is going to be greater than the former. Cut a very long story short, seven years later, and having, having raised within the town nearly a million pounds, um, we not only created the church to be a key driver for regeneration in that community, but we had to buy the old school because we just had so many activities going on. Um, and uh, today, um, I'm really proud of the fact that the church continues to grow and grow. And I only share that not for my own glory, but for God's. I'm so grateful that, that Brother Bernard turned up and said, get the hell out of here and go and start and do God's work. I was doing God's work all along, but what I've seen is the way in which God has grown my trust and my confidence in him. And that story is so significant for me because I believe having seen him do what he did in that parish, um, my, my trust, my, I know that actually uh, anything is possible in him. I've never been one to attend a gym. In fact, um, you might tell that. Um, in fact, a friend took me uh, to a gym on one occasion and said, Paul, I think you'd really, really enjoy it and it would do you good. Uh, I went once, and he said to me afterwards over coffee, no, I don't think Jim is your thing. (laughs) Um, But actually, um, I did the Surrey half this year. And one of the things that I've learnt through um, the Surrey half, I just spent too much time in a car. One of the things I learnt through the Surrey half is, is, for the first time ever, something about fitness and training. And of course, the more training we do, the fitter we become. And I think it's the same with faith. I think the more we put trust in God, the more our confidence in him grows. And I'm so grateful. As I got to the seven-year point in Bury Port, I said to my wife, Louise, "Um, I've never been as happy. I was so, so miserable when I came here. But I've I've never been so happy. I want to be here forever. I'm not allowed to say that, because as soon as I say that, as soon as I actually say, I want to build a tabernacle, I want to build a booth, Louise knows that's the point that God wants to move me on. Um, So it's about growing, all of us, in our faith. And then thirdly, and lastly, um, what if we followed more in daily life? What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those who God has chosen? It is God who justifies. 
The answer to what if we became better disciples in daily life is that we would be agents of his transformation in the world. Discipleship isn't always easy, other than prayer, which is why I couldn't leave out verses 26 and 27. It requires two ingredients, courage and discipline. So good that David talked a little bit earlier about fear. We all have fears and they're irrational. In our house, there are two fears. Um, I've got a wife and two children who love their adrenaline junkies. They'll go on any roller coaster or whatever. Um, But if they see a spider, uh, they scream for dad. Uh, On the other hand, I cannot stand heights. Here's a steeplejack in my last church. And it made me sick just watching him. I won't go on the London Eye. We We all have fears. Disciple, we have fears that are deeper than this, don't we? Discipleship requires us to push irrational boundaries, but not blindly, in the knowledge that if God is for us, who can be against us? And will he not, who spared his own son, graciously give us all things that we need, even courage? We need courage, we also need discipline. Discipleship and discipline share the same root. Without being disciplined in putting God first, it's difficult to grow. One of the things that I'm just a little bit concerned about is commitment. When I was, when I was confirmed, very, very key moment in my life, um, the saintly Archbishop of Wales who confirmed me, really important person on my journey, said three things in my confirmation. It's the first sermon I remember. You cannot grow in Christ unless you pray, unless you read your Bible, and unless you worship regularly with a church. We're seeing the pattern of commitment change. But commitment is so important. Commitment regularly to worshipping, not once a month or once every two months, but regularly, weekly, beginning every every week uh, by celebrating the Lord's Day. So, because my homework um, had a positive effect in Chobham, um, I'm going to set two pieces of homework very briefly this morning. The first is, I'm going to encourage us all, including me, because I don't do this, in our busy days to stop at uh, 11 o'clock each day and to say the Lord's Prayer. Not to rabbit the Lord's Prayer, to say each line and then leave a gap to allow God to speak to us. 11 o'clock each day. And then secondly, to attempt just one thing, one thing each week, which is outside your comfort zone for God. I know what mine is. Amen.